Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE, podcast on iTunes, Spotify and TuneIn and more, and online via the website, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Now, can you believe it's a year since GDPR uh, was introduced by the EU? We've got a very interesting interview um, that for you in around about 10 minutes. But first, let's talk about the world's most recognized telephone brand, Huawei. Uh, certainly. Would you buy a phone from these people? Do you know what? Funny enough, I would. Okay, right. You're going to have to uh, explain. Okay, uh, so the whole point is that they are not able to sell their phones into the States, but they are able to sell their phones into Europe. Uh, the whole point is that now Google has said they won't be able to work with them anymore because of the change in the law in, in, in America. But I think they would come around with a workaround. But I also think the clever people on the Internet would also come up with a workaround and have some version of Android that you could run on Huawei phones. And the hardware is very, very good. Okay, right. Let's clarify uh, on this. It's not so much a law, it's an executive order issued by the Trump administration who have been targeting Chinese companies uh, just just because uh, Trump has basically two great enemies in the world that he's trying to pick fights with, but not really. Uh, China on one side and Iran on the other. And the more these company, these countries are in the news, the better for him because it looks like he's fighting for America when he actually doesn't really have much of a reason to go after either. There's a lot of history in this story and I would have thought that the whole President Trump thing and and then and the China and the trade war with China will be part of it. But actually, the the history of this whole story goes back maybe ten years. Okay, um, the company. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting company. All right, it was started by a, a guy who was a technician with the People's Liberation Army, which is one of their major problems at the moment. Uh, he started the company in 1987, and they've literally gone from zero to hero in the last what 30 years. They're the mm-hmm. second biggest film manufacturer in the world. They employ 180 thousand people, a hundred billion dollar turnover. Uh, the reason that they got there, all kinds of accusations of dodgy deals and stealing patents and. Blah, 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 murky uh, stuff left right and center um but where they make their money is not so much in phones they are a major part of 4g and networking and they're part of the internet backbone and this is what makes them very very dangerous if you like all right or very very Mm -hmm. influential shall we put it that way all right um i think a lot of people are agreed that huawei make the best gear and they do it at the best price and one of the reasons they're able to do that is because they have consistently invested in research and because they've invested in research not only do they have the best gear but they also hold the most patents for 5g Mm, and again people would be generally agreed that when it comes to 5g huawei are a year 18 months ahead of everybody else. Which is very interesting because uh, we're, we've been told, we've been sold on this idea that Huawei are a security threat, but it's not necessarily a security th- threat to do with, you know, the, the phone in your hand. It goes deeper than that. It does go deeper than that. And it's down to this because they are in the backbone of the Internet. Mm. US have been very suspicious of Huawei for a long time. Mm. And in 2011, Huawei actually said, look, we have nothing to hide. Come in, 
take a look around, investigate us, we're fine. So the Americans did that. Uh, however, it's a plan that backfired for Huawei because in 2012, the Americans went, hmm, we're suspicious. They weren't able right. to tell us. <laughs> we asked questions about their connections with the, the Chinese government and your man, he was in the People's Liberation Army, blah, blah, and they weren't able to su- supply any answers. Maybe right. they weren't asking questions that there weren't any answers to, is what Huawei would tell you. However, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of suspicions were, were uh, raised. And then in 2014, the US banned Huawei um, from applying for any government contracts. Then in 2017, uh, China introduced a national intelligence law. And this is where it really went off the rails, because the Chinese government have introduced a law that says that Chinese companies and Chinese uh, residents and citizens must assist the government in intelligent manners. Right. All right. And that is not a case of, oh, there's been a crime. We want you to help it with our investigation. This is, we need information. You must give it to us. Now, that is kind of at odds with approaches taken by American companies like Apple, who have said, okay, something happened on our device. Tough. It's nothing to do with Apple. It's the law of the country that is what I'm saying is that the government have said it's not it's not a case of if a crime has been committed that you must assist the police. What they're saying is if we need intelligence for whatever reason and we ask your assistance in gathering that intelligence, you are obliged to help us. Now, right. the U.S. government does not have anything like that. And in fact, you, you, you raise a very good point about Apple. Apple are very good uh, when it comes to privacy, and it's one of the, the things that they are very good at. And even when the FBI do come knocking on the door of Apple saying, we need you to unlock this phone because blah, 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 Apple will go, eh, sorry, can't help you. Yeah. Privacy is important to them. So um, that's where it kind of it really went off the uh, the rails. And then last year, the director of the FBI, and now this is really interesting, right? The director of the FBI said, the risks of allowing any company that is beholden to foreign governments to gain positions of power inside our telecommunications network is dangerous. And I think that any logical person sitting down thinking, OK, right, well, if this company uh, is legally obliged to give information to their government and this company have all of the gear that is necessary in the various networking hubs around the world, they are in a great place to supply information. Mm. Yeah. You well, know? I suppose if you create a network, you create an entry point. Yes, you do. And I think in the UK, they had a very interesting attitude to Huawei because the Secret Service people there were looking at Huawei and they kind of went, OK, all right, well, yeah. Um, but we would use Huawei not necessarily for the networking part or the hub or the routing or anything like that, but we would use, you know, cabling and antennas or maybe towers. That's what we do. And for that kind of stuff, we're happy. Mm. Yeah. But I don't know. I just, I, just, I just think it's interesting. I think one story has been played out in the media, but I think there's another completely different story that is going on behind closed doors that we're not considering. I, I think you're spot on with that. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, everybody's being played. Yeah. I think yeah. Huawei is being played. I think you and I are being played. It is interesting because, you know, Huawei, as big as they are and as influential as they are, and as, you know, what have they got? Have, they, have they've got like maybe 25% of the, the, the backbone of the Internet that is using their equipment? It's not like it's 100% of everything that runs the Internet is run by Huawei. Mm. You know? Okay. But the danger of it is, I mean, and, and, and again, going back to 
where the element of truth is, is back to that statement from the FBI. He said the risk of allowing any company beholden to a foreign government to gain position of power inside our telecommunications, net- telecommunications networks is dangerous. And what we don't think about normally, because we're not at that level of government, is we're thinking about the things that operate our society to this day. All right. Power mm. grids, banking systems, air traffic control. Uh, 5G is coming out. One of the big things they're talking about 5G is autonomous cars. Mm, you know, yeah. what if the Chinese government were suddenly able to just turn around and go, okay, uh, all cars stop working? What if even, never mind the cars, what if they could control just the traffic lights? <laughs> I mean, just think about it. If that all the traffic lights in Dublin or Cork just stopped working tomorrow, can yeah. you imagine the gridlock? Yes. We are at war right now, my friend. It's the battle for 5G. <laughs> <laughs> okay yep yeah okay i'll buy that you'll buy that all right i'll man. buy that for a dollar <laughs> lovely stuff all right well listen that is the big uh, story of uh, the week but we'll wrap it up with there niall as always thank you very much this is tech central your weekly tech podcast from ireland's techcentral.ie on the 25th of may last year the eu's gdpr general data protection regulations came into effect protecting users and their personal data one year later, has it had the desired effect? We went back to Laura Fannon, a specialist partner in this area from Hayes Solicitors, to find out. So we're pretty much a year to the day since GDPR yeah. came in. And uh, has it been the big bad wolf that so many people expected? I don't think it has. Um, I mean, I think when you think about the GDPR and you think about data protection law uh, in the main, we've actually had data protection law in this country since the 1980s. So a lot of what the GDPR did, what it did increase obligations on data controllers about certain things that they had to do, it did introduce some new rights for data subjects. The majority of the principles of data protection law and the general principles of data protection law remained unchanged. What the big change brought about by the GDPR was the whole enforcement regime, and it really did give national supervisory authorities like the Data Protection Commission power to enforce and investigate breaches of data protection law. I think when, when we look at that power, when you, when you look at fines of what, 20 million euro or 4% of turnover, whichever yeah. is greater, yeah. uh, that really scared a lot of people. And there was yeah. a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt, yeah. as we love to say out there. Yeah. And there were some really wacky ideas of things people were concerned yeah. about. Yeah, so there was. And everybody, I suppose, has a GDPR story since uh, the implementation of the GDPR. And there was the famous one about the hairdresser refusing to give uh, her, her client the name of the hair colour that she used when the client wanted to change a hairdresser. She seemed to think it was some sort of a data access request and said you'd have to write in formally. There was the one then recently about the bins in the GPO, that there couldn't be any bins in the GPO because people would be throwing their receipts in and that was a breach of GDPR. And then there was the one about the kids in the church where they had um, drawn crosses uh, in their class as part of their artwork for their first confession. They'd written, I'm sorry, on the cross, their name and their two or three that they were going to tell the priest in the first confession and a parent complained that that was a breach of their GDPR rights, particularly because it was special category data. It was to do with their religious beliefs that the local priest had to go in and remove all of the pictures. And then there was a very recent example of it where uh, people were told not to take pictures of their kids at their first Holy Communion and the Data Protection Commission actually came out and got involved in that.
that one and said, look, no, it's perfectly fine under the household exception to take pictures of your children and keep them for special events. It only becomes a problem when you start to publish those pictures on you know, social media platforms and that's when you might have data protection obligations over them, but it's absolutely fine to take a picture of your child making their first Holy Communion and put it in an album at home or show it to family and friends on your phone. And when we're looking at particularly the commercial application of data, uh, we mentioned the GPO there, we mentioned hair colour. You know, when we talked initially about uh, data protection and GDPR as it was incoming at the time, there was this sense that there was this industry popping up about GDPR compliance. And yet so many companies actually don't deal with handing and retaining their customer data, that people really shouldn't have been as as worried about it as they were. Yeah. So it really, GDPR and data protection law, it only applies to personal data. So it's data about individuals. So it's only really business to consumer businesses that have a huge issue in terms of data protection. All organisations will have to think about data protection from some uh, angle because even if you don't hold personal data of your customers, you will, of course, hold personal data about your employees. And all organisations will have at least one employee. So there will, there is, to some, some degree, every organisation does have to think about data protection. But you're right, there was a whole um, industry around data protection compliance. And um, businesses did become, some businesses did become overly concerned about their data protection compliance. But if you had, a, if you were in a good place before, the GDPR, if you were complying with our existing data protection law, you were actually in a very good place come uh, the GDPR. There was obviously changes that you had to make to your privacy policy, to your employee uh, privacy notice, but the changes weren't as huge as they, they as people uh, thought they may have been. One of the more obvious changes uh, was direct marketing uh, mail and email. So how does one, I don't want to say get around that, but understand yeah. how you are staying on various mailing lists? Yeah, so there was a big thing about direct marketing, particularly in the run-up in the couple of weeks before the General Data Protection Regulation. And I think everybody's inboxes were full with people asking them to opt back in to uh, mail lists or people asking them that they want to opt out. And there was various approaches to it. And there was a big concern that the rules around direct marketing had changed. They, in fact, hadn't changed under the General Data Protection Regulation. So there's two pieces of legislation that you need to think about when you're thinking about direct marketing. And one is the GDPR and the other is the Electronic Privacy Regulations of 2011. And it's the Electronic Privacy Regulation of 2011 that set out the rules in relation to electronic direct marketing. And under those rules, to market somebody who is not your customer, you need to have their opt-in consent. So that's where you say, do you want to hear from us? And they tick the box. So then you're relying on the lawful processing ground of consent and you need to think about the GDPR and you have to tell them you have the right to withdraw this consent at any time and you have to tell them that at the time you collect the information and you have to give them an unsubscribe on every email and tell them they can object at any time to marketing. If you're marketing someone who is your customer, the rules are slightly more relaxed. If you're sending them electronic direct marketing you can if you've obtained their contact details in the course of a sale or of a product or service to them and you have at that time given them an opportunity to opt out of the receipt of direct marketing from you you can use their information for direct marketing by 
by email, text or phone if they've if they've haven't opted out of any of that to market similar products or services to that which you initially sold them. And you have to give them an opportunity to opt out on every email, so that's the unsubscribe link. And you have to be marketing your own products or services and you have to contact them within 12 months of the sale of the product or keep marketing them every 12 months to keep the database alive. So the GDPR didn't really change any of that. What the GDPR did change was the whole threshold for gaining consent and why people needed to email their whole database again and ask them is because they wouldn't necessarily have obtained consent in the first instance to a GDPR standard. So they might have gotten the opt-in consent, but they might not have said at that time, you can withdraw your consent at any time. And you have to have said that in order to meet the GDPR standard level of consent. So that was the reason why a lot of people were asking people to opt back into databases. Or sometimes people, and a lot of, we, we saw this with with. Uh, quite a few organisations they couldn't actually really determine who had consented and who hadn't they just had this large database and they didn't know where it had come from these people had been receiving direct marketing for years and they just thought look to be safer we'll just ask everybody to opt back in again so the rules around direct marketing really didn't change at all um, in terms of GDPR and that was one of the kind of miscommunications around the time it was um, implemented that you, you know you were no longer going to be able to send uh, direct marketing but the, you can of course uh, still market your customers if you can comply with the various rules in the GDPR and the rules in the electronic privacy regulations if you're sending marketing by text phone or email uh, one of the things that I, I think nobody really misses uh, and was common practice for a while was people renting out their mailing lists. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, that seems to have yeah. vanished. Yeah, that does seem to have vanished. I mean, you potentially can still do that if people give you permission to do it. But again, with the GDPR level consent, you have to identify who it is that they're consenting to. So you'd actually have to name all of those people. So these kind of lines where, you know, let us share your information with our trusted third party partners and you tick that that's no longer sufficient consent you'd have to say is it okay for x y and z to contact you and the person consents to each one of those separately so um that's why you just don't really see that type of behavior happening anymore and yet we are seeing it on websites when we uh, visit something for the first time and we see accept um decline etc this is the information that is actually sitting there in the background Sorry, the 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 third party tracking cookies is out to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, so what you do see is, and the whole cookies, how you can uh, obtain consent for cookies is set out in both the GDPR and the electronic privacy regulations, which are currently under review in Europe. And there's a bit of sort of how those two pieces of legislation um, interplay is actually uh, quite a complex thing, but. In terms of the third party tracking cookies, so that's where a website operator basically allows uh, a third party to drop cookies on that website and to follow those people around and gain a profile, build up a profile of them over time and serve advertising to them. Um, that potentially is personal data, so you do need to have some form of consent uh, to that processing. And what you've seen is these consent management platforms where this wall pops up and you're told we have third parties 
third party tracking cookies and you can click in and all of those third parties are named and you can link to their privacy policies but you do have to do a bit of clicking to get to who the third parties are now there's been no kind of view of any uh, national uh, uh, data protection authority or our own data protection authority yet on those consent management platforms but it certainly is something that you do see an awful lot of websites putting in place now to try to get consent for those third parties in that that higher GDP or threshold consent. And I think what's a, a fascinating exercise to do is to download a plugin and see how many uh, cookies are operating yeah. in the background. And I think um, that actually is something that's quite scary. Yeah, it is actually frightening how, how much information is being tracked about you all the time. And people are just... People just seem to be just seem to ignore cookies and just seem to click accept and go in and there's a bit of consent fatigue you just literally click accept and next thing you know all of these cookies are tracking you but if you took the time to actually go through and look at the cookies policy and look at exactly what it is that's been set on uh, set and following you around it is quite surprising how much information you're giving away about yourself but from a website operator's point of view and particularly publisher's point of view their argument is well look we have to give away content for free and the only way we can do that is by supporting it with advertising and this is the way in which advertising works it's a very effective method of advertising for advertisers because they're getting their ads in front of the people who are actually interested in their products and I think a lot of you see on a lot of websites look if you turn off the tracking cookies doesn't mean you'll see less ads just means you see ads that aren't relevant to you uh, moving on to the issue of enforcement uh, yeah. again is something people were very scared about um, what kind of scale are we looking at I mean uh, when we're looking at say the right to be forgotten we were seeing that 50% of complaints to Google were actually being turned down because they, they weren't relevant or there was an element of yeah. reputation scrubbing or whatever. What sort of um, level of, or success rate, I guess, are we looking at with GDPR complaints? So we're seeing in terms of fines, we haven't seen any fine in Ireland yet. So we haven't seen the Irish regulator administer any fine yet. But I would think one will be issued you know, sooner rather than later. So we're a year in, we've seen fines across 11 regulators so far. So 11 countries have issued fines. The total amount of fines issued to date, I think, is somewhere around 56 million. But 50 million of that was one fine. So 50 million of that was the fine against Google by the French regulator. Um, We've seen fines up in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, So the Germans think we're the first out of the blocks with a fine last November. And they fined a social media company 20,000 euro. So there was, you know, quite a a low fine uh, in the grand scheme of things. They justified that on the basis that the social media company that they fined had fully cooperated with them, had notified them of the breach, had notified the individuals who were affected, had taken you know steps to make sure it hadn't happened again. Um, we saw the Polish regulator issue a fine last week for €200,000. We've seen, I think, the Portuguese regulator issue a fine of €400,000. So, you know, those fines are significant depending on the size of, of the company. But definitely the Google fine is an outlier at the moment. We haven't, you know, that is one that just stands alone at £50 million. We, You know, that is uh, obviously significantly higher than any of the other fines that we've seen. The other thing in terms of uh, GDPR complaints 
was, you know, would we see an opening of the floodgates of, lit- of GDPR litigation because you were now going to be, be able to bring home a claim for material and non-material damage. Haven't seen that materialise yet, but that will obviously take time because, you know, under the Irish legal system, it does take a couple of years before these cases get to court. So it could be the case that these types of cases are starting now and we just won't have any idea of how many there are or uh, how they're going to be interpreted by the courts or the level of awards that are going to be given by the courts until a couple of years down the road. So I think if we look back in five years, we will just have a different idea of um, how uh, all of the remedies under the GDPR in fact play out. The Google case is particularly interesting because, yes, it's the largest fine uh, issued to date, but there was no uh, involvement from the Office of uh, the Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland. And in fact, there was discussion in Europe to make sure that that case wasn't adjudicated in Ireland for the very reason that GDPR was meant to make um, prosecution of data breaches easier. So can you can you tell me a little bit about how yeah. that happened? So the what happened there was the at the time that the uh, investigation started, Google hadn't actually um, had their main establishment established in Ireland yet. They have since. So at the time, the Irish under the one-stop shop system, there wasn't any main establishment in Europe. So they couldn't avail of the one-stop shop system and they couldn't say that it was, should be the Irish regulator. Um, doing it and in fact the Irish regulator had published a letter in the Irish Times in some months before the uh, decision saying that they were not the uh, regulator for uh, Google because Google's main establishment wasn't in Ireland at that time so that's why the French authority um dealt with it and Google did argue that it should have been the Irish authority but that was that that was rejected. Is this the sort of thing that the Irish regulator really needs? That we need to see a big win, uh, like the the French Google case, to to actually be seen to be you know taken seriously because we are so reliant on the yeah. tech sector and it is such a part of brand Ireland that you know we don't want to be seen to be going easy on these people. Yeah, and I think the Irish regulator is impartial, and I, I do think we will see a big fine coming out of the um, Irish regulator's office, you know, in the not too distant future. Uh, so I guess just to finish up, uh, are we seeing sort of that greater awareness uh, with general companies out there that, OK, we need to have our house in order. We we know what the basic procedures are and we know roughly if we're on the wrong side of a fine, it's not going to kill us. Uh, is that initial fear? Uh, has it passed? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that uh, there is always the fear of the fine. There's also the fear of the litigation. And while, you know, a 50 million fine would obviously wipe out most companies, uh, but for a small business, a fine of 200 grand or 400 grand would be a a substantial fine. So I I don't think that there is, you know, oh, sure, it'll all be fine now. We haven't seen any fines. I think we're too early on to say that. So I do think that the you know I, I do think that Irish businesses still are fearing fines and litigation. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Laura Fannin, a specialist partner in the area of GDPR with Hayes Solicitors. Now, that's it for our show this week. Uh, remember, you can get the lowdown on all things happening in tech in Ireland and worldwide with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Or, of course, listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. On to next weekend, for myself, Dusty Rhodes, after Niall Kitson and Tech Central HQ, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. 
Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.